0: Okay, guys, we just got finished over at Find Your Film with our interview with writer-director, Slapface writer-director, Jeremiah Kipp. Just post-mortem. Yeah, I was going to say post-mortem with Mick Garris, but post-mortem <laughs> on this, Eric Holmes, your thoughts on the interview and just anything you want to say. We're, we're going to do this, I guess, as, as, as our intro for our, our Find Your Film interview with Jeremiah Kip.
1: The time is... Hey,
0: look at you with me. the intro. Look at you with you the... With,
1: okay, so listeners, we just interviewed so we're, Jeremiah we're, Kipp. We're, we're, we're fresh off... What yeah, we're, we're at the end and we got back to the beginning I'm like That's, this you, is a podcast uh, directed by Christopher Nolan Eric, Eric
0: yes Eric Holmes you're the Christopher Nolan stand how dare you I tried to do a little memento on your you know what but here's the thing we just finished our interview with 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 Jeremiah Kipp He's a writer, director for Slapface. I am just really pumping this movie, not just because Kip's a great guy and a cinephile fellow cinephile, but I really enjoyed Slapface. What did you want to say about this interview, Eric? Just for listeners who don't know what Slapface is about or, or whatnot, what can they expect from the last hour we were spending with Mr. Kip?
1: Uh, he's he's really he, he's really awesome to listen to. I I love how um I I love how he's really realistic about his his own work, but when he talks about um what you can do if you want to make movies. Uh, don't don't be afraid to suck, which I think is probably some of the best advice ever. And he he goes he goes deeper into that. He, you ask him a question, he goes for it, and it was really really uh good to hear him talk. Yeah, no, listeners, if
0: whether you love or hate or dislike or are neutral regarding Slapface, this is a great interview because he like Eric says, he just talks about the nuts and bolts of filmmaking. He talks about Slapface stuff, creating the film, the world of Slapface, and then he's just The huge movie buff. So we just get into the, like you were saying, Eric, the nuts and bolts of just storytelling and filmmaking. There's so many different references. Eric, could you count the amount of references? There's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. What else did he mention? Oh.
1: Director Samuel Fuller, right? Well, first of all, the the Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, as soon as he said that. I know. I was like, please, please write and direct it. Uh, good <laughs> Frankenstein okay, or, okay. or, or uh, good okay okay Eric I, I, would, I would love to see his version of Frankenstein uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein yeah
0: by the way you didn't know this I'm, we're actually having the director of uh, Mary Shelley coming in next week I'm, I'm going to make sure that that, that filmmaker knows your that
1: is version
0: that <laughs> is version but anyways yeah a lot of stuff for this interview I think this is very value added for our thing and we're going to be talking about this a little bit more for our Find Your Film episode but you know until then enjoy our interview with jeremiah kip final words from you eric holmes before this kip interview any final thoughts from you eric holmes
1: uh he's just a really cool guy and hopefully we get to talk to him again soon and uh indiegogo fund uh yes yeah, don't, yes. yes don't pick up check, check pick that out up. Yeah, don't pick – no,
0: don't don't pick – up. no, definitely pick up this podcast and listen to it. But actually, check out our links below on our podcast descriptions regarding the Indiegogo project. Don't pick up – by the way, we forgot to mention, my bad on this, that Don't Pick Up – it's already reached its goal, its initial goal. But, you know, extra dollars towards this Don't Pick Up, which, by the way, it's a project that he's directing, a short. Definitely uh, check that out. We'll have all the links. And um, that's it. That's it. Okay. You are needed, Eric. I'm needed. Yep. Let's. we'll we'll talk to you later. I will see you later. And thank you guys so much for listening to this. In upcoming interview with Jeremiah. Kip. Hey everyone, uh, we're back. Find here's the Find Your Film Podcast. I'm with. My, my co-host, I'm going to say my co-host because I'm very narcissistic, Eric Holmes. <laughs> but most, most importantly, we are joined by Slapface filmmaker, writer, Jeremiah Kipp. I really love this film and this is my second time interviewing Jeremiah and I'm really excited to actually delve, dive deeper into this film. Before you say hello, Jeremiah, I'm going to put Eric Holmes on the spot. Your
1: mini review of Slapface before we start the interview. That was good. I liked it a lot. And it was, uh, you see the back. Well, I, I don't know if this is going up as video or not, but the, you get the background. And it uh it, it definitely went in directions I wasn't expecting, uh, especially something called, a movie called Slap Face. Greg said, hey, there's this movie on Shutter called Slap Face. You should see it. And I'm like, I don't know what the hell that is, but I'll watch it. And I'm watching it thinking it's going to be like, it, it seemed like a, a movie I've seen before. Until it starts going, and it's like, oh, okay, this is this is something completely different, and it was uh, it was really good. So, congratulations on that.
2: Thank you.
1: Well, Jeremiah, I'm going to first uh, start off when I've asked you this before, but I want to
0: ask it kind of in a different way. But I, it's been about a week and a half since I've seen Slapface, Face, and it's one mm-hmm. of these movies that honestly it still stays with me. So, I guess in a, a layman's perspective, how did you and your DP work? Regarding the visual dynamic of your film, to actually, I don't know if you guys did it consciously, but it just, it's something that just stays with you, not just thematically, but just the visual design. It's claustrophobic, but it feels like an, a very open universe. How did you guys do that?
2: Yeah, it was very, it was very intentional, very purposeful, and also very unconscious. I've worked with that director of photography, Dominic Siddeley, for gosh, um, at least 12 years now. So he and I found each other many years ago. We made many, many short films together. He's shot three or four of my features. And we're really, really good friends. And we're very, very different people. We're very different personalities. So, you know, if... But but, but both of us, I consider to be emotionally available and intuitive. So we're not the type of artists that map out uh, specifically what we're going to do. That said... Uh, you know, when when constructing this film, the the screenplay was very tight and we certainly had intentions going in. When Dominic and I scouted the locations, we spoke a great deal about how we might conceive uh, the living room or the bedroom or the woods and what what tools we would use for each of those. So we laid out a little game plan for ourselves and then allowed ourselves to be uh, in the moment and very present when we work, which is something that we like to do. But I think you can only do that with a fellow artist when you've worked together as much as we have. Tom and I have kind of created our own secret language. So when we would do a rehearsal on set with the actors, which I always like to do, you know, we would watch what the actors are doing. We would, I would work with the actors and like make choices based on where they were. So for example, a confrontation scene between uh, Anna and Tom, the older brother and his girlfriend, uh, When we showed up to set that day, you know, we said, well, what if, you know, what if they were fighting in the living room? And then I thought, well, what if, what if Anna were washing dishes in the kitchen and kept going through the doorway and it became this wall between them when they were arguing, you know, and then you find the visual metaphor for the scene. You're like, all right, you guys are going to keep hiding in these rooms until Tom marches into the kitchen and directly confronts you. Uh, And that informed the visual style of the scene. And in its own way, every scene is like that. You know, we say, you know, let's let the actors show us what they're going to do. Let's tweak that. And then Dominic and I will talk to each other and say, where are we going to put the camera? And it's very interesting for our crew because uh, Dom and I will say, it'll sound like this. What if we're back here, and then like, ping, ping, you know, we'll do these shots, and then boop, we'll go in for the insert. And then the gaffer will be like, what does that mean? And Dom will say, we're going to be on the dolly track here back on the 35-millimeter lens, and then we're going to switch to the 50 for cross-coverage, and then we're going to go on the 85 for this insert, you know, or whatever it happens to be. But that's only because we've made ourselves into this peanut butter and jelly sandwich that can go together. Now, the last thing I'll say about Dom and the visual construction of Sat base is that When we did the short film Proof of Concept, Dominic shot that as well. And indeed, it was Dom's idea to shoot the short. You know, it's like I had this feature-length script that I was trying to get made for years with different producers. And, you know, they would try to build it up and the money would fall apart and they'd build it up and fall apart. And then Dom one day said, hey, I've got $5,000. You know, why don't we go shoot a short film? You know, go, t- go take that feature length flat face, scrunch it down into five pages, and we'll go make something. Uh, and we did. But what was funny about that s- scenario was that Dom said, well, why don't you do a little Indiegogo crowdfunding? You know, we'll see if we can raise the money that way. So maybe I don't have to spend $5,000. And we did. And we raised, you know, whatever it was, five or $6,000. And Dom said, it's a good thing because I didn't have $5,000. I just wanted to create a situation where you could go make your movie, this project that you've been so passionate about for all of these years. And the short, which is not available online or anything like that, it, it played film festivals for like three years and it got good reviews. And during every q and I would say, this is a proof of concept for feature-length film and that's what we're trying to do. And essentially that's how... The feature got made, was word of mouth got to a producer named Joe Benedetto, who knew Mike Manning, and said, Mike, you're looking for a horror film. Jeremiah's got an impressive resume in this cool short film. Uh, why don't you guys meet and talk? And uh Mike and I had a phone call that was, you know, 15-20 minutes long. that spent in the script. And uh and then Mike came on board, we signed an option agreement. And then eight months later or nine months later, uh, there we were, you know, there we were on, you know, on set in the yard in front of the house with a, little, with a monster and a little boy. I was like, wow, you know, they, Mike Manning really made it happen. So that was a fruitful relationship. That's a long way of answering your question about yeah. Dominic Civilli, but he is an extremely important partner in my creative life. You know, it's just he he and I have done many, many things together and don't talk about it that much. And indeed, on the set of Slapface, this feature, you know, we just went in there together and we both knew the movie that we wanted to make without having to talk about it too much, which is a great luxury for a filmmaker.
1: I actually got a bunch of questions for the uh, about the movie, but I should probably wait for spoiler stuff. But uh, you did mention uh, Indiegogo, which I guess would be a good segue into you have uh, one going right now.
2: We do. Yeah, there's a... uh... It was an Indiegogo for a short film called Don't Pick Up, and it was written by a playwright named Suze Nolan, who I've collaborated with a number of times over the years. Um, and she had a play that, uh, that had done really well. It was like uh, it had been performed maybe 60 or 70 times all across America and maybe in Europe, too. I'm not sure. But like it was a successful play. And uh and at a certain point, she said, "I'd really like to make this as a movie. I'd like us to, to hire the best possible actors and uh, and go make it. And it's set in the children's bookstore. Uh, and it reminds me of David Lean's Brief Encounter. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie. It's a really beautiful film from I think the 1940s about a couple that tentatively gets together, but there are awkward things that get in the way. So there's a real tenderness it's almost like a dark rom-com where you feel these two people who are a little messed up and a little thwarted by life almost getting together and the audience hopes and yearns for them to make it work uh and the children's bookstore that the film is set in uh kind of lends a very fantastic fairy tale tone to the piece uh which as you know from slackface is something that really attracts me and Don't Pick Up is not a horror film, but it has dark underpinnings and it has a certain fanciful element. And we had wonderful actors. We shot it a week or two ago. So there was enough money to get it in the can. And we shot it with uh, Keith David, who's a phenomenal actor that I remember watching as a little kid in John Carpenter's The Thing. He plays Childs in that movie and is a hero to all of us who love horror films and practical special effects uh, In that movie... You know, when you when you see it, you know, Childs is just the guy that you love. Like, there's McCready and Childs, and you, and you love all of the characters, but those are the two that people identify with. Uh, and uh, every person of color who was on the crew and one of the uh, background players were all like, we want to do this movie because we want to be around Keith David, who is Childs, who is Frank from They Live. And his oh, resume is amazing. I mean, he's done Platoon and... Uh, Requiem for a Dream, and There's Something About Mary, so many great films. And he was cast second. The first person we cast was Catherine Irby, who most people probably know from her long stint on Law and Order Criminal Intent, where she was one of the leads on that show with Vincent D'Onofrio, solving crimes in New York with every amazing character actor as a perk. Horror people might know her from Stir of Echoes, with Kevin Bacon, where she played his wife. She was an amazing, gave an amazing performance in that movie. Uh, the Addiction, Abel Ferrara's bizarre 1990s East Village vampire movie with Christopher Walken and Lily Taylor. Um, and she was in What About Bob when she was 25 years old, playing a 16-year-old. She is uh, Richard Dreyfuss's daughter and had a bunch of cool scenes with Bill Murray uh, but I best knew her from HBO, the HBO series Oz, which was pretty fantastic and disturbing. Anyway, Keith David and Catherine Irby, great actors in this movie set in a children's bookstore. The Indiegogo is still up and running, uh, and, it's to, and it's for post-production. Uh, so anybody who is interested in learning more or wants to see our pitch can follow the link and learn more about Don't Pick Up.
1: So is this cool. going to, is the, the short that you're making with the Indiegogo, is this going to be um, kind of like slap face in that you make the short and with the hopes of expanding it into a uh, feature maybe later on?
2: In this case, don't pick up the standalone piece. You know, Sue's okay. just wanted to create uh, a movie because, you know, when you do a play, it's ephemeral, the audience watches it, the actors play it, and that's a really beautiful experience for everyone involved, but it also is like a sandcastle. It gets like washed away and all you have left of it at the end is your memory. I mean, even if you videotape a play, it's like, it's like, it's not quite the same thing as seeing it live. Uh, so I think Sue's wanted a record of this film, but I think also, you know, she wanted to work with actors at the level of experience of Keith David and Catherine Irby. And was interested in cultivating relationships with that kind of actor So whether we work with Keith and Katie again, we had a remarkable experience. They had a wonderful time. We loved working with them and they had a wonderful time working with us too. So maybe we'll get to work with Katie and Keith in the future. If that happens, I would love that. And if that doesn't happen, it still means that you've worked with actors of that caliber. You know, I really, I love all actors, whether they're name actors or whether they're extremely experienced actors or whether they're, not known actors that are good actors you know my kind of actor is a good actor and uh and actors you know whether they're you know james earl jones or whether they're you know that person that you hired that nobody may have heard of before this movie you know they're all doing the exact same amount of work you know they an actor will do the same thing They I mean, they all apply i mean actors are all different but they apply the same tools, they all get at it in a certain way. Uh, And an older experienced actor just gets there a little faster than the rest of us and brings the breadth of their experience and their talent, you know, and that's wonderful, but I don't create a hierarchy of actors, you know, like I, I never wanted to put Keith and Katie on a pedestal, you know, like it's like I, you know, they're, they're heroes to all of us, but at the same time, they are here to act in your film you know, and you are there to direct them in your movie and you wrote these parts that they are playing, you know, so you can't create a situation where you're looking up to them. I don't think that helps anybody. I think I I prefer the mentality of we're all in a rock band. We're all doing it together. We're all robbing the bank together and we all have our part, you know, and who and the most important person on set changes. You know, it's like everybody has a role to fill. I, and I look at it that way, and that helps me not get stars in my eyes when I'm working with somebody that, you know, I, I was a beloved icon for me as a child. You know, that just doesn't help anyone. Uh, when you're making a movie, you're all in it together, and, and that's been the way. That's the way I approached it from my very first feature until now. You know, it's like I love the experience of working with my heroes, and it's great when they're a good person. And If they're a terrible person, okay, fine. I'd never need to work with them again. You know. <laughs> But uh, I I will demystify and say that Keith David and Catherine Irby are wonderful people. And they were great to work with. They were a total delight. And uh, anybody who contributes to the Indiegogo Campaign is helping to facilitate this movie. You know, Keith wanted to do it because he rarely gets to play romantic. He's often cast as like, you know, I mean, he's often cast as an authority figure now, standing in front of a map saying something like, we've got 48 hours, gentlemen, 48 hours, you know, and, uh, and for him to be the loving person and the sensitive person and the vulnerable person, I think, was meaningful for him. And Katie also had her reasons for wanting to take on this role that were specific to her that she talks about in rehearsal, but that are that I think are, are more private and internal. But it led her it gave her the keys to this role where she gets to be uh, messy and all over the place and chaotic in a way that I think really excited her.
0: You know the the monster in Slapface. He, I mean, without giving too much away, there one of the powers of this creature monster is to. I, I mean I guess, and for my interpretation, is to enter one's subconscious. And, and that's a weird question, but it feels like you, Jeremiah, you enter the subconscious of all, a lot of cinephiles. Because you pick actors who we really want to see on screen. Can you just talk about, I mean, you already talked about Catherine and Keith, but just uh, something like just, oh, yeah, I'm going to shoot a short and I'm going to have Michael O'Keefe as my lead. And I'm going to have Melissa Leo come in as, uh, you know, on bass guitar. And I mean, how you know yeah. what I'm saying? How awesome that was is that? Ju-
2: uh, That's yeah. another short film that is doing the festival circuit right now. And if anybody wants to watch the film, they can go to Jeff Bridges dot com. Jeff Bridges was not in our film. But Jeff Bridges saw the movie and loved the movie and said, this is a great film. Can I put it up on my website so that other people can see it? And of course, we we're like, you're the dude. You know, <laughs> Jeff Bridges hey, man, get, get, share get our short there. You know, uh, and it really meant a lot to us that Jeff Bridges loved our film. You know, it's like it's just because Jeff Bridges is such a great actor and that's, and Greg, that is what I respond to. You know, it's, I love I love actors, actors. I love actors who love acting. I love actors who are really open to um, embodying the role and, and, and showing up for work and being ready to play. So that film is called Draw Up and Stare. It was written by Emily Donahoe, who also produced the film. And she approached me about it because it was a very phantasmagorical, strange film. It's set like a month after 9 11. Uh, and I never really wanted to do a 9-11 film 9-11, you know, it's like It's so loaded And I was in New York on 9-11 And don't care to remember that time You know, it's like I have nothing I, I felt like I had nothing to say about that Until so I read her script Which was so poetic And so beautiful And so daring in its sincerity And it was also a very weird film Like it's, it, you know, it starts it, it feels, it has kind of a Twin Peaks vibe where Michael O'Keefe plays a, a fireman named Jimmy, who was there on 9-11, and is, is going through a process of very introspective PTSD. Uh, so he's gone back upstate to this cabin that he lives in and is trying to put some pieces back together. Uh, and in doing so, he thinks he's cracking up because at night, these birds are flying around outside in these strange, almost apocalyptic formations. And uh, a woman is showing up on his lawn mysteriously, and he's like, am I dreaming, or are these things real? And one of his connections to reality is Melissa Leo, who, who works at the diner that he goes to every, every day. Uh, and so she has a foothold to reality for him. And when he walks into the diner, she's like hadn't seen him in a month and didn't know he was still alive. So it's like Rip Van Winkle is still alive. So it's got that kind of a vibe. The cast is great. Michael and Melissa were great to work with, as was Linda Powell, uh, who plays the the woman who mysteriously appears to him in what may or may not be dreams. Uh, And, you know, I I mean, people who enjoy Slapface will catch the vibe of Drop and Stare, which exists in this netherworld, you know, between reality and the Phantasmagoria. Yeah.
1: Well, um, I guess before we get into spoilers, uh, I don't think it's a, maybe it is. <laughs> if it is if it is we can push to later but uh sure. the one of the main themes of slapface is abuse as very strong theme in it um uh now i know that uh when you talked to greg uh you mentioned that um it started off the script started off a lot different than what we saw it was the it was the child and the father yes. and uh the uh the the actor uh mike ban yeah sorry my donkey brains today but uh he suggested making them uh brothers which yeah which worked really well for the uh movie but um was abuse uh still a strong uh strong theme of the the movie before then
2: that was what mike connected with you know when mike read the script it was the father and the son and mike yeah. connected deeply to the themes of uh of abuse Uh, that that runs throughout the story. You know, the entire, the the mechanism of the movie is it's uh, it's a horror movie with a monster in it, the boy and the monster story. But parallel to that is the story of systematic abuse. Now, Mike uh, read the script and and proposed an idea, which was uh, what if instead of a father-son story, which is kind of a trope in independent films, The Dead Beat Dead. You know he's like what if it were an older brother uh i immediately had enormous pushback on this because it reminded me of john carpenter's the fog where all the actors were cast younger and the tom Atkins role suddenly was this hunk and you know i was like man i don't want to do a wb teeny bopper version of this you can you can count me out if that's what we're doing here and mike's like let's talk on the phone and we talked on the phone for an hour and a half not as producer and director but as actor and director and he said let me tell you my idea and uh, he's like, no, I want to preserve the, the rough edges of your story and the darkness of your story. And I think it would be far more interesting if instead of a father-son, what if it is an older brother and younger brother? And the older brother is barely a man himself and is thrust into parenthood and has to learn the rules as he's going along. But The only rules he knows are from this toxic relationship that he had with his own father, the only tools that he has are the tools that he received from his own dad. You can imagine that his dad played slap face with him, this disciplinary tool. Uh, So he's passing that on to Lucas and he's really thinking of it as doing his best. He doesn't think of it as abuse. He thinks of it as a cautionary measure and a disciplinary measure and a loving gesture of a way to connect them. Because both their parents are dead and if they slap each other, maybe they can wake each other up and shock each other into reality. So the more that mike talked about this the more excited i got and i said well let me take two weeks and do a rewrite and see how it feels on the page and as it happened i was reading i was rereading mark Twain's huckleberry finn at the time which is all about huck like being thrust into situations that are beyond his years uh, and so doing the rewrite it just got deeper and better and it felt like there were more layers on top of layers in the story and uh and and this older brother was harder to pin down because he all hope is not lost for him he's still young you want tom to be better you know that tom cares about his younger brother you know that there's love there and you know and you want tom to be a better guy um and it was extremely interesting watching audiences respond to mike manning's performance as tom because the first thing you see in the movie are the older brother and the younger brother slapping each other with no context whatsoever and then it goes into the title and the opening credits show a bunch of witchery, you know, and you're like, all right, you know, there's like, what is this movie gonna be? Uh, and as the movie progresses, audiences to Tom strangely, you know, they want to hate him at the beginning. they're like, you should die for slapping your brother. I can't wait to watch you die, you know? And then as the movie progresses, they're like, oh no, these brothers are all they've got, you know, they're all they have for each other. And they're torn between this triangle between these two brothers who love each other. And this monster in the boy and forms into a strange love triangle that is headed straight to disaster, you know. And so, so, um, uh, so I, I have to give Mike Manning all the credit for uh, for this really wonderful choice that, that made the story better.
1: I, I like how his, uh, in this is, is, and like you said, having a brother, having him be the brother adds an interesting dynamic because, like you said, he's basically a kid i mean he's not a kid but he's certainly not uh certainly not equipped to be a parent he was kind of thrust into that and you have that scene with uh with uh he's like i don't hit women no you only hit little boys i was like god damn yeah. <laughs> but uh it, it it's really interesting watching uh the uh, tom and tom and lucas the the brother relationship because he's kind of a he's kind of a shithead. Mm. But at the same time like you see that there's there's parts where like he wants to he wants to do he wants to do right you know yeah. by his brother um there's a, even a bit of uh addiction problems uh you know he's, he's constantly drinking um and uh you know you, you see little you see little moments where uh tim uh Tom and Lucas are like uh you know have really sweet moments together yeah. and then and then when you do the slap face it's like oh dude you're doing stop doing that <laughs> And then yeah. that, that pays off. We'll, we'll get into that in spoilers, but that pays off huge at the end with the uh, – I'll stop talking about that right now. But, yeah, that's
2: <laughs> – well, that. I mean, I'm, I'm really grateful that we had rehearsal on this movie. You know, it's – it's the, the, the three movies we've talked about on this show, Drop and Stare and Don't Pick Up and Face, all had rehearsal periods with the actors, which is very rare in – in television and films of all sizes, big films, small films, independent films, you almost never get rehearsal. And you're constantly thrust into situations where actors are like, and you've been married for 20 years and action, you know, it's like (laughs) they have no time to build any kind of relationship. So I was very grateful that Mike, uh, built into the fabric of pre-production that we would have rehearsals with Mike and August and Lucas Hassel, who plays the monster, uh, we were all able to sit around a table and do a lot of work together and build the brother's relationship and build the relationship between the boy and the monster uh and even with dan Tadea, who played the sheriff like we had a little bit of time together you know he he got the part uh audiences might recognize him as the dad from clueless he was one of the cops in the usual suspect i loved him from blood simple which is the first Cohen brothers movie anyway Dan, we, we got like probably an hour of rehearsal. Uh, he showed up on set, but he showed up early. And uh, so we sat down for an hour and I was really grateful because Dan would say, "I uh, said, you know, you know, he's like, I've done 200 movies. I could play the sheriff in 200 different ways. So tell me about your movie and tell me about your story. Tell me about the world of your movie. Tell me about the brothers. Tell me about their games that face. And I would talk to him about all that stuff. And what I realized that Dan was doing was when he's not acting, he's a painter. And he was thinking of his character as a piece of, as a tile in the mosaic. You know, how do I fit into the broader world of your story? And I was really grateful, you know, Dan asked a lot of questions and filled in the world for himself. And then by the time we were done, he understood where his sheriff existed in the world of our movie. And he was great to work with. You know, he was the most prepared and the most vulnerable and the most interesting Uh, and he loved working with August, the little boy, you know, they had a really lovely time together where, uh, you know, it was almost like they were going out on a date when they were uh, doing the scene together because they were so charmed and taken by each other and so warm with each other, which informed so much of the scene.
0: Jeremiah, before we get to the spoilers, I just have one final question for you. You mentioned Tile in the Mosaic, and now with filmmaking these days, you can Google what's the best Canon camera digital to have or or just download screenwriting tips, go to YouTube how-to videos, all these things on how to make an indie film. But regarding that Tile in the Mosaic situation, what is that specific piece of the puzzle, that tile, that up-and-coming filmmakers are missing because – the layman's terms is like we can get everything by just googling everything but what is something that they're missing and i thought that i'm asking you this question because there's something that you said and i think in an interview that you said that you described one of your the ways you describe yourself is a you're a director for hire which to me seems like you do personal projects but you're also most importantly you're here to work so being a person who's here to work what is that specific tile that a lot of people are missing
2: Well, I absolutely love to work, first of all. I love making films. I have ever since I was a child. I was one of those, like, little kids who had a VHS camcorder would gather all my friends together. And we would make zombie movies in the backyard. Or I would say, bring your army jackets. We're going to make a war film out in the woods. You know, and that was me, you know, growing up. I must have made, like, 300 movies before going to film school. Um, And so I would start there, you know, and say, you know, like, all the tools are available to you, so release the need to make something good when you start you know it's like start by just like getting even if you're making a film with your phone editing software is very easy to find just make a bunch of things because the best way to figure out what you want to say and what you want to do is by making things but make them cheaply don't don't put that pressure on yourself of saying like i need a gazillion dollars to make my movie just make a bunch of things that are small and then you'll learn what you want to say, and you'll learn what your voice is, and you'll learn what you care about. Uh, a lot of um, uh, people who are in art school learn by copying paintings from other people, you know, and then they find out what they like, and they're making their own paintings, you know. And certainly, when I started out when I was twelve, I was copying George Romero movies, you know, and I was uh, copying Samuel Fuller movies. Uh, And then over time, you know, I was like, oh, this feels right to me. This feels like the story that I want to tell. So in the beginning, release the need to make anything good. Just make things like just make things with your friends and like make things freely. Uh, And some of the time you'll see those and be like, wow, that was really, really good. You know, like I I was surprised by how good that turned out. And then and then you can do the festival thing with that or build your way, which is what I did. Build your way towards making Now I'm ready to spend money on a film that I want to put in festivals. And I know the story that I want to tell. And that's the next level. So level one is make a bunch of things. And then level two would be what is the story that I want to tell that no one else can tell? You know, my story, Jeremiah's story or Greg's story. You know, what is that thing? Because I, you know, the, the kind of movie that I don't love watching is... I really love watching Quentin Tarantino's movies, so I'm going to do a Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah, you know, I think it's okay to do that when you're with your friends and like discovering your voice. You know, do as many of those as you can. Do do all of that. But then, like, when you're like, okay, now I'm writing. You know, now I'm developing. You know, like and now I'm going to lay down some money and make something. You know, it's like, well, what is my story? And that story can only come from you. And you can say that however you want. Like, you can, some people are like, what is the theme of the movie? What is the thing that I want to say? Or like, what is, you know, does not have to start there though. Start with an image, you know, like for Slapface, it started, it didn't start with the theme of abuse. It started for me rereading Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and loving the middle section of that book where the monster is outside of the farmhouse. And studying the family inside in the book, it takes place over many months, and uh, and I was like, that would make a heck of a movie. It's uh, you know, it's like uh, the monsters outside looking in. And I said, well, who are those people inside? And I gradually started pulling elements from. I grew up with my grandparents in Rhode Island. I started pulling elements from my grandfather's childhood. He played slap bass with his father, who was an orphan and learned in the orphanage. So I was like, if if they were playing the slap bass. That would create a conversation between the monster on the outside and this monstrous behavior on the inside. That's interesting. And then expanding the world of the story, my grandfather was pursued by three female bullies through the woods. They would throw rocks at him. And indeed, one of those bullies would circle back around and say, I loved you, you're my secret boyfriend. Kissed me, but don't tell anyone or we're gonna beat you twice as hard. And I said, "Oh." That's got to go in the movie too, because like there's a, there's a, and now the theme is emerging. Now you know that everything in the movie is about the way that people are trying to love one another, but the things that get in the way, which are systematic abuse or mechanisms of power, you know, that make you say, like, I, I, I don't want to give up my social currency in order to love you. You know, all those ingredients start forming. And if you look at writing as a uh, stone soup, I love the model of stone soup, whether you're writing or whether you're making a film and putting a film together. Stone soup is, hey, we're going to make a soup. All we have is some water in this stone. Okay, uh, and you'll start making it. And then your friends will be like, well, you know, you can't just have a stone in there. I have some carrots, you know, I'll put some carrots in there for you. And then somebody else will I've got some salt and pepper. It's easy enough for me to like put some salt and pepper in there, just give it something. And then somebody will be like, well, I've got these potatoes. And then before you know it, the stone soup has grown into a layer-on-layer layer, uh, piece. You know. So from the starting point of, I just want to make stuff, you can learn what you want to say. And then once you realize that having to say something is the most important thing, that goes beyond budget, that goes beyond anything. I've made movies for $60 and six figures. You know, and, and like both, in both of those it's like what is the thing that we're trying to say with it uh, and both can be good that $60 movie like played film festivals for like a long time and like helped And I got one of my first name actors to read or do a movie because he saw that and was like I want to work with that weirdo so you know long answer to a short question but I, I think everybody gets to directing in a different way so the two pieces of advice that I would always give are make films, make as many as you can and make them cheaply with your friends. Two, once you've done that, figure out what you want to say and then build everything around that core, you know, whether it's whether it's a theme or an image or whatever it is, because that can only come from you.
0: Great. Thank you so much.
1: Uh, Eric, one more question before we, we do the spoilers. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, so um, Bruce has a uh, movies that he puts in the box. He's got a box and in the box, uh, people <laughs> recommend movies. Uh, these are movies that are kind of lesser seen, uh, maybe yeah. something that means something to you, or maybe it's just uh, something you saw last week. And it's like, why, do, why don't more people talk about that? So I ask you, what would this movie be? To put in uh, Bruce's
2: book, well, there are there are many, 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 many great films on Shudder, which is why I'm so happy that Slapface is on Shudder. But one of the films that I loved that was that came out the same month as Slapface, that completely blew my mind, was a movie called Hellbender. Uh, Hellbender, it's it's another witch movie, but it was the the way that it like you, you know it's the way that it was made was really something special. Uh, it was made by a family of filmmakers called the Adams family, and that's not a joke. They're not, you know, yeah. really. The guy's name is John Adams, his wife's name is uh, uh, Toby Poser, and their kids' names are uh, um, Zelda, Zelda, uh, yeah, and Zelda, and Lulu. Lulu. Yeah, yeah. And they're teenagers, right? And uh, they are extraordinary, you know. So they make these films together, they direct them together, and this movie. Is essentially a coming of age story with a mother and a daughter living in the woods and they're both witches and they're both hellbenders specifically, you know, and, uh, the mom knows the power and is trying to protect the kid and like bring the kid up in such a way where like the kid will know how to use her powers when it's the right time. But this kid, the teenager who is teeming with energy and curiosity and vivaciousness and vitality and is discovering faster than her mom wants her to find out, like, what this life is. And it's an amazing metaphor for coming of age. It's an amazing metaphor for emerging from childhood and parenthood, and the way that our relationship with our parental figures changes. Now, they direct the films together, they shoot the films together, they do all the different roles of the movie together, so it has that kind of DIY scrappy vibe that I associate with movies that I love, like Don Coscarelli's Phantasm, where you feel that movie was made from scratch, that they made it together, and and a movie that singular can only get made that way. Like it's one of those things I was just saying before. No one but the Adams family could have made Hellbender. That movie is uniquely its own. I've never seen anything like it. And they've made a couple of other movies like The Deeper You Dig. If you if, you know if you find their other films, they're all wonderful. And Hellbender is like them at so far the peak of their powers. I know that when, when when our movies were coming out, we talked to each other. I talked to the audience and we were both on our next feature. You know, they they have a new feature that's in post, and I have a new feature in post called the Boo Hag, that we shot down in Savannah, Georgia. So we we're like, yeah, we're making our movies, and our movies came out at the same time, and we were fans of each other. The thing the last thing I'll say about Hellbender is I was just talking to uh, my person that I love about like uh uh i was like man teenagers should make more films you know i, I taught in film school and I, my favorite teaching was teenagers over the summer i haven't taught in years and years and years but i loved teaching the teenagers because i think teenagers are experts at being teenagers and if you give them the camera and say go tell your story and give them permission and say there's no way that you can fuck this up they will do the weirdest movies because they are in the weirdest time of their lives And I read an interview with The Adams Family recently where the mom and dad, uh, Toby and John, were saying, yeah, our teenagers direct those scenes. You know, our teenagers write those scenes. That's why they feel so authentic. That's why they feel so truthful to what it is being a teenager, because we give them the keys to making the movie. And we say, like, you will, you know, you know better than anybody on earth what it is to be a teenager and where you're at in your life right now. And that will inform the movie. And Hellbender is all about it. So within a movie that is very gory and has like really gooey special effects and crazy ass shit that's happening, within it is a heart that is beating with such vitality. Hellbender is a must watch. I mean, I swear to God, you guys, like Hellbender is the movie that I saw in 2022 where I was like, you know, I'm like, you guys, everybody needs to see it. And it really did give me that phantasm feeling. You know, you know when you see a movie and it reminds you of the t- how you felt in your life when you saw another movie. I remember seeing The Matrix and I was like, I haven't felt this way since The Terminator or T Two. And I remember watching Hellbender and being like, I have not felt this way about a movie since the powerful feeling I got watching Phantasm back when I was little.
0: Those are very, very big words, uh, Jeremiah. Thank you so much for it. Uh, by the way, I I also loved Hellbender, Eric. You haven't seen it yet, right?
1: No,
0: not yet. You definitely. It's there. I mean, oh, how, exactly.
1: how can I not after that?
0: Yeah, after that. <laughs> well, yes, and that is not a paid endorsement. That they should hire you as their publicist as, along hey man, with take, film. It.
2: Yeah, Adam's family send me a check. You know, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give me my address. No, no, no. Actually, don't. Like, I, I would just send it back to you and say put it into your films. You know, I so fine. no, no. I, uh, the the glory of the if if it if it enables the Adam's family to make another movie and for people to invest in them, then my job is done. I don't need my ten percent.
0: And before we go, where, where can people find you, Jeremiah? Just uh, any uh, extra plugs before we go?
2: Yeah, I'm very active on social media. You know, so, and Jeremiah Kip is a rare enough name that if you type in Jeremiah Kip, you'll only find me. So I'm very active on Facebook. I'm very active on Instagram. And then Slatface, if people want to follow the journey of that film, that is on Instagram and Twitter and um, Facebook. Uh, I think it's Slapface Film on Instagram and Twitter, and Slapface feature Film on uh, Facebook. But if people want to follow it, we're we're on there all the time. And uh, I, I love championing other filmmakers, and I love talking about the people I work with, and I love talking about actors that I love. So I'm so I'm very vocal about uh, independent film and the things that I care about.
0: Jeremiah, thank you so much for your
1: time, uh, listener. Oh, and don't pick up. Uh, donate to. Don't pick up.
2: All right, go
0: Thanks, ahead, <laughs> Yes, yeah, don't pick up, and you know what, listeners, we are all about archiving DVDs and collecting DVDs and Blu-ray. Get you know you can watch it on Shutter, digital, uh, VOD. You can do all those things, but personally, biasly, pick up the DVD. It's it, it's out right yeah, now. If
2: you, go to, if you go to Best Buy or Target right now. Like Hellbender and Slapface are always right next to each other. So buy both films and then do a witch double bill. I, and, because they both have, they both have similar themes. They're both coming of age stories. They have a witch in them, and they're very very different kinds of movies. The tone and the structure of them is entirely different. But I think the films would make a great double bill. And you can watch whichever one you want first. You know, it's like I, I I love Hellbender and uh, and watch both of them and enjoy. Okay.
0: Thank you, guys. Uh Thank you, Jeremiah, so much. Uh, you guys, take, we're also going to ask Jeremiah a couple of questions about Slapface regarding the ending. We're going to stop this interview right now. Thank you guys for listening and just watch all his films and his shorts. He has a lot of shorts, which I still have, have yet to get to. But, um yeah, thank you, Jeremiah, so much for joining us.
2: Thank you.